Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR for another cram session. In these special releases, we have aggregated the takeaways and tips from previous episodes. If you'd like a focused refresher on previous topics covered, stay tuned for this cram session. Coming up next are the takeaways and tips from the episode Fundraise Types, Sources, and Structures with Dave Burkus. So great to have such a generous and knowledgeable guest like Dave on the show. Let's recap some of the key takeaways. The first takeaway is on the capital gains clock. One challenge of the non-equity-based financing, including convertible debt, is that you cannot start your capital gains clock. This is important because many investors get a discount on capital gains tax paid for equity investments that are held for five years, in some cases both at the state and federal level. As Dave mentioned, this can be a significant reduction that has fluctuated between 50 and 100% over the years with various administrations in office. Probably goes without saying that the positive exits that have this tax exclusion may have a much healthier IRR or internal rate of return. All right, the second major takeaway is on frothy valuations. We've briefly touched on this in the past, but while convertibles are typically not preferred by investors, in the case of a tech bubble, they could be the better structure, certainly for the investors and maybe even for the startups. The reason for this is that we are seeing very frothy inflated valuations right now in September of 2014, especially on the coasts. When the tech bubble does burst, valuations will come down and make it difficult for startups to raise with high valuations from a previous fundraise. This is where the full ratchet plus a discount comes into play for investors with a convertible. While the company may have done well, capital markets could retract, causing valuations to correct down. If that happens, then the convertible note investors will get their discount on the post-bubble valuation. Of course, the big variable here is time, and no one can predict when the bubble will burst and if their note term will convert before or after that event. All right, the third and final takeaway is on warrants. Recall that a warrant is an option to purchase a certain number of shares at a predetermined price. As Dave articulated, these are typically necessary when an investor and an entrepreneur are too far apart on valuation. So they use warrants as a negotiating tool. They are also used for non-equity structured deals to provide some upside opportunity. And finally, you'll find entrepreneurs using warrants as a way to try and generate more fundraise dollars in the future. But as Dave mentioned, these will be dilutive to the cap table. In a way, a pro rata right, assuming no drag along, is an option similar to a warrant. 
although it doesn't often cost anything and there will be no discount on the price at the future fundraise. But they do provide the investor the option to maintain their equity percentage. All right, it's time for the tip of the week. This week's tip is what's your fundraise source and structure? So while we did not have time to review the 30-some-odd structures from Dave's book, Extending the Runway, I did want to highlight six of the structures we discussed and who they are often used by. This is not an exhaustive list, but should provide a good overview of the more common funding types. The first one is equity, which is often great for fast-growing, scalable startups. This category includes the standard price round, so transfer of equity at an agreed-upon valuation, either preferred or common, and warrants. The sources of equity fundraises are friends and family, venture investors, so angels, VCs, accelerators, and in some cases, PE, and then also crowdfunding platforms, albeit currently this is not open to the unaccredited in the U.S. due to the JOBS Act not being fully executed. All right, the second major category is debt, and this is a good option for companies that have strong cash flow but don't want to give up equity or don't have the opportunity to scale and have a large exit. This category includes loans that are repaid with an interest rate and often require a personal guarantee, i.e. if the business fails, then the entrepreneur still has to pay it back. The sources of debt often come from either home equity loans or lines of credit, as Dave mentioned, credit cards, banks, the SBA, which is the Small Business Administration, venture investors, as we talked about before, angels, VCs, etc., and even online P2P and other debt funding platforms. All right, the third major funding type I want to talk to is a hybrid of debt and equity, which often makes sense for very early stage companies, bridges, deals that need to be done quickly, or situations where there is a high degree of uncertainty in future valuations. This category includes convertible debt, safes, and loans with warrants. Sources of capital for these types of structures includes the venture category again and crowdfunding platforms. All right, the fourth major category I wanted to cover is asset-based lending, which often makes sense when one wants to retain as much equity as possible, has short-term cash needs, and is confident in their ability to repay, although terms here can be costly and time-consuming. The types of assets to lend against in this category would be equipment, inventory, accounts receivable, contract base, which could include lease term financing or PO financing, and finally, IP. The sources of capital in this category include asset-based lenders and banks. All right, the fifth major category is royalties and licenses. These can help you finance efforts in your core markets while giving others access to non-strategic markets. Uh, In the case of royalties, they are often tied to sales, gross margin, or net margin, so they should only increase as the business grows, which can reduce strain in the early stages. The sources of these types of funding include venture, strategic corporate partners, competitors, distributors, or similar players in other geographies. Uh, So with one of the startups that I invested in, there was recently an opportunity to provide an exclusive license for all rights to sell a product in India in exchange for an upfront cash payment. All right. And the sixth category that I wanted to cover is grants and government funding. So if the startup meets the criteria, it is a great way to obtain financing without giving up equity, although it does require adherence to certain processes and deliverables. 
This category includes SPIR grants, STTR grants. There are also venture funds. So at times, venture funds are created via government grants, and they're tasked with investing in startups that have a particular net benefit to society. Let's say a clean tech venture fund that is entirely grant funded. Okay, there are a number of agencies that have money allocated and processes set up for distributing these grants, and a list of agencies will be included in the show notes. They're different for each type of grant, so the STTR list is different from the SBIR list, but they include agencies such as the Department of Defense, the DOE, the NIH, etc. So before your startup or a startup you are coaching draws up a PPM and begins raising capital, it may be worthwhile to take a step back and review the options available, the sources in each, and which makes the most sense for the type of company and the stage that they're at. Coming up next are the takeaways and tips from the episode on due diligence with Imran Ahmad. It was awesome of Imran to weigh in on this topic. Let's recap some of the key takeaways. The first one is on the due diligence process. So let's talk about timing and length of the process. Imran said that this typically lasts two to three weeks for very early seed stage deals and often six to eight weeks at the most for a Series A deal. The next element was stages in the diligence process, which included screening, which is immediately when a startup comes in the door, the diligence process begins with the initial screen. Number two was business due diligence, which gives them a good sense for the business model, the customers, the product pipeline, the financials, and some other variables. And the third element was legal due diligence. So this includes IP, the documents being complete, the stockholder certificates are in order, governance, share classes, and the cap table. And Imran mentioned that in the case of his firm, OCA, they will hold investment committee to make a decision on proceeding before the intensive costly diligence is kicked off. So a unanimous decision is required to proceed with deeper due diligence. All right, the second major key takeaway is on coordinating diligence activities with others. So as Imran articulated, this is an entrepreneur's game, and investors exist to try and help entrepreneurs grow and make their business successful. If you fail to coordinate with others in the diligence process and make the same requests that have already been delivered from the entrepreneur, then you're only hurting the startup and impeding their progress. All right, and the third and final key takeaway is on the profile of the CEO. So Imran mentioned that one of his standard background check questions is what can the CEO learn, what can he do better, and where can you hire around that CEO to address areas that are not a strength? On this point, it may be worthwhile to consider founders' characteristics and capabilities in three simple categories. Number one is characteristics that are unlikely to change. Number two are characteristics and capabilities that are teachable and learnable. And number three are those capabilities and characteristics that can be supplemented with hiring. There are characteristics like work ethic, commitment, coachability, resilience, intelligence, and resourcefulness that may be unlikely to change. But there are also a number of things that are either learnable or can be supplemented with hiring, like sales expertise, technological aptitude, market or customer knowledge. 
As Imran explained today, it can be very useful to assess strengths, weaknesses, and general characteristics to inform investments and team makeup decisions going forward. All right, it's time for the tip of the week, and this week's tip is due diligence, a benefit or burden. Today, Imran talked about how diligence can really increase a portfolio's returns because it helps identify major risks. Maybe diligence will not increase your startup's opportunity for success, but it may change the portfolio of startups that you invest in. The problem that I've heard from angels and super angels is that it's a long process that takes a lot of time. Not every startup investor has the time or has a process in place to execute diligence efficiently. So I wanted to include some resources that can help make one more efficient at executing the process or identifying ways to democratize and or delegate the process. The first resource that is worth reviewing is the due diligence best practices from the ACA. The link is included in the show notes. They start off by discussing the sources of risk by major categories, including market demand, management capability, capital requirements, defensibility, etc. And each category can be ascribed a risk percentage. In their example, there are seven categories and they assign 90% likelihood for success to each, which assumes a 10% chance of failure. So when all seven of these 90% figures are aggregated, the collective success probability is 48%. As they show, if even one of these categories moves down from 90% to, say, 50%, then the collective success is reduced to 27%. From a theoretical standpoint, this shows that the layered risks or red flags from multiple evaluation categories can significantly decrease the likelihood of a successful outcome. All right, the second resource I wanted to include is a questionnaire that allows one to walk through and answer the majority of diligence items. It doesn't differ significantly from most other checklists, but the question format may be easier for an investor and founder to talk through. And it may also allow the startup to take the driver's seat when producing these items. The link to this questionnaire as well is in the show notes. And then the final resource I've included is an actual due diligence checklist from the Angel Resource Institute. It clearly separates out all of the categories of information and the specific items required in each. For those coordinating or quarterbacking a diligence process, it makes for a nice dashboard for delegating out responsibility and tracking status. Not every investor is willing to do diligence or has the time and or resources available to conduct the process. In this case, if they want to invest, there often must be a lead investor willing to complete the diligence process. Or, in many cases, angels will join an angel group so that they can benefit from many members' efforts and their expertise. I'm also aware that there are now some top MBA programs that have formed groups to complete diligence for others. From what I've learned, they often conduct these diligence activities for free in exchange for the experience of doing it. So if you have strong deal flow but are in need of MBA-level analyst support for your diligence, I'd encourage you to reach out to these student groups at Harvard, Michigan Ross, Dartmouth Tuck, and Virginia Darden. There may be others, but those are the schools that I'm aware of. So while some may see diligence as a long and arduous process, it is critical to execute and protects one's investments. Investors can join an angel group, utilize the resources mentioned, 
and or find groups to assist with diligence in order to reduce the burden and realize the benefit. This may be a podcast first, but please send me your feedback and your criticisms. What should I start doing? What should I stop doing? And what should I continue doing? Do you like the length and format, or would you suggest a change? Lately, I've been getting more feedback, which is very valuable, so shoot me an email. It's nick at fullratchet.net, and let me know what you think. All right, next week we are talking unicorns, those rare billion-dollar-plus companies that so many VCs are trying to find, and maybe why you shouldn't be chasing them. Jerry Newman will be joining us to talk through his approach and expand on his article, Betting on Ponies, Non-Unicorn Investing, which in my opinion was one of the most intriguing articles I've read all year. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. Up next here, we have the takeaways and tips from the episode Non-Unicorn Investing with Jerry Newman. Really great for Jerry to share his valuable time to illustrate his thoughts on investment strategy. Let's recap some of the key takeaways. The first is on Eileen Lee's study and the key insights from that study. So her study found that one in 1,538 venture-backed companies became unicorns. And over the time period, 39 total companies qualified as unicorns. These are the U.S.-based software companies started since 2003 and are valued at over $1 billion by public or private market investors. So this amounts to 0.07% of consumer and enterprise software startups. The period studied spanned about 10 years from 2003 to 2013, and it took approximately seven years on average from founding to exit. And these were all venture-backed companies. So some of Jerry's key insights from this study. First, he notes that the effort didn't consider all of the companies that came across a typical startup investor's desk that don't ultimately get venture-backed. So the percentage of unicorns per startup is much lower than even what the study showed. And venture investments resemble this power law. So the most successful startup exits account for the bulk of dollars returned. Ultimately, if you want to attract investors to your venture fund, you need to invest in unicorns, and there are two strategies for doing so. Number one, 
you either establish the expertise, the network, and the reputation in a category to become the go-to investor for startups. Or number two, you index, i.e. you invest in everything. And while the first item, becoming an expert, is difficult, the second item is much more difficult in Jerry's opinion. As a direct investor, it's nearly impossible, and even via fund of funds where you're losing percentage points, it is still very unlikely to be able to access every venture-backed deal. All right, the second key takeaway is on the two things required for any startup. The first is pains versus gains. So Jerry talked about the pains versus gains or the vitamin pill versus the painkiller. Is the product or service making people's lives better, i.e. the gains, or is it making customers' lives less bad, i.e. the pains? And here Jerry focuses on the pains. He believes, as many other venture investors do, that people will go out of their way to seek out painkillers, whereas things that incrementally improve one situation may just be seen as a nice-to-have, not compelling a purchase. And with regards to pain, Jerry talked about the mistake that he sees many students making, which is to focus on a mild pain in a large market instead of what he advocates, which is focus on extreme pain in a niche market. Okay, and then the second element required for any startup is feasibility. So can the team build what they say they're going to build? Can they do it on time and budget? Do they know what they're getting themselves into? Technical aptitude and amount of money required can be quite difficult to estimate when evaluating startups for investment, but it is critical that the team and their plan has the potential to be a success. All right, and the third and final takeaway is on specific sector focus. So while Jerry supports the strategy of becoming the investor of choice, like Union Square Ventures, he does not think it's realistic for him to build that reputation in the near term. Yet, he thinks one can become the investor that startups prefer to work with by specializing in a certain sector. This effectively gives them access to the top deal flow in that area and allows the investor to make better decisions because they become an expert in the sector. Can a generalist investor compete with firms like Sequoia? It doesn't seem very likely to Jerry. But can one of the top investors in the ad tech sector compete for the best ad tech companies? In his opinion, yes, if the entrepreneur recognizes that they would be an asset. And this isn't a strategy that advocates avoiding unicorns. It merely says don't base your approach on trying to pick them. It can be easy to look at companies in other sectors and pick a potential unicorn and a great idea because you may not know the complexities of that industry. The problems that are being solved sound real and compelling, but the challenges in successfully deploying a solution to that problem are often completely unknown to the non-expert. All right, it's time for the tip of the week, and this week's tip is the angel's ruin. During the interview today, we talked about the gambler's ruin where when there is a positive expected value for each bet, you can still go broke if your bet size is too big. Recall that to avoid the gambler's ruin, Jerry advocated to, number one, keep a standard investment amount, regardless of how much you love the company. Number two, use your pro rata right on your winners. You have better information than outside investors and should know whether a follow-on investment is a good or bad decision. Number three, Establish an investment size that is small enough to build a portfolio. Some say you need at least 10 investments because 1 in 10 is a big success. 
Others propose a portfolio of 20, which should provide an even better opportunity to hit on a big success. And today, Jerry suggested a portfolio size of 30 investments. Whatever the magic number, a portfolio is a must. And the fourth and final point here was to abandon betting strategies that are no longer working. If you have a thesis and a sector focus, it should be based on external drivers or themes in the greater marketplace. Things do evolve, and these drivers change over time. One must adapt their thesis and or sector as the world around them changes. Not following these tenets and falling victim to the angel's ruin is a common trap for many angels. Varying their investment size, ignoring pro rata, building a portfolio of very few investments, and investing in trends that have run their course are a frequent occurrence. I myself have made some of these mistakes and fortunately have learned a great deal by doing investments myself. As I take a step back here and consider Jerry's thoughts on investments, I'm reminded of emails I've received from some of you. I did a recap episode a few weeks ago, and while I'm glad that it was well-received, I've also heard from others that they like a more structured guide on best practices. While my intent has been to cover a range of startup investing topics in the interviews, I do recognize that an organized set of key learnings and principles from the experts, like the lessons on the gambler's ruin, would be helpful to investors and those startups looking for investment. Fortunately, I've been discussing these principles with many practitioners over the past year and have been compiling these lessons. So look out for a release on the website in the coming weeks that will organize these items and help angels leverage the knowledge of the experts to evaluate startups more quickly and effectively and also allow startups to better understand the key elements to help them get funded. So to wrap up this tip of the week, consider the angel's ruin as you develop an investment strategy. Assuming an overall target return of 20% on your investments, how many coin flips do you want for a shot at that return? Coming up next are the takeaways and tips from the episode VC Portfolio Strategy with Rob Go. Thank you to Rob for sharing his thoughts and time with us. Let's recap some of the key takeaways. The first is on the five main parameters of a VC portfolio strategy. Number one was the number of investments. Two was the percentage of ownership in each company in which an investment is made. Number three is the amount of capital and staging of capital. Number four was capacity. So how much time and mindshare does each venture professional have to contribute? And number five was exceptions. So when does one break away from their chosen approach to items one through four? The second key takeaway is sector focus. So sectors do come and go. They have a natural life cycle like anything else. And the time that a sector is venture fundable is a small percentage of that sector or industry's total life cycle. Here, Rob advises that you consider the evolution of your sector focus areas to make sure that you stay ahead of the curve instead of falling behind it. His second point here related to how broadly or narrowly the sector is defined. As one crafts his or her angel or venture portfolio strategy, the amount of deal flow that fits within the focus area must be broad enough to see enough opportunities while being narrow enough that one's expertise allows these opportunities to be sufficiently and quickly vetted. And the third final takeaway is on opportunity funds. So Rob cited that there's three types. 
The first is follow-on opportunities from previous fund investments, where VCs are using their pro rata to maintain their percentage or attempt to increase their ownership. The second is a category that may do some follow-ons from previous investments, but will also invest in new opportunities. These may be companies that they decided not to invest in earlier on because the economics or other factors weren't a fit for the fund, but now would be a strong fit for an opportunity fund investment. And the third category includes these large opportunity funds focused on only late-stage venture-backed private companies. And Rob did mention that some hedge funds and mutual funds that typically play in the public markets are starting to move downstream to invest here. All right, it's time for the tip of the week. And this week's tip is binary outcomes and the underappreciated exit. On this week's episode, we touched on the timing of returns and faster time to exits. We also addressed on last week's episode this notion of a binary outcome, where a win is a unicorn investment with an outsized return and everything else is a loss. I'd like to use this week's tip to discuss how so-called losses from the portfolio that experience an early exit can ultimately become enormous wins. Many will talk negatively about investments that pay back less than the capital investment, the same amount as the capital investment, or even the modest single-digit IRR returners. While it's true that these also RAND investments will not make an angel's portfolio, as exits occur and capital is returned, this provides an angel more shots on goal. Consider David S. Rose's comments from Episode 3. He mentioned that 5 out of 10 angel investments will fail completely. Two will return your money, two will be solid successes, and just one will be a significant success. So the 4 out of 10 modest returners may provide 4 or more opportunities to find startups with an outsized return. When this is considered, a portfolio of 10 investments can turn into a portfolio of 14 or more investments without ever going back to the well for more capital. Mark Andreessen recently said, quote, Ultimately, in both startups and VC, success rate, batting average, means nothing. Slugging percentage means everything, end quote. In an industry where the winners can be very big and the number of investments made can significantly increase the likelihood of a big outcome, more at-bats can be extremely valuable. So embrace these losers because more opportunities at the plate means more chances to hit that home run. That will conclude this cram session installment. Jump on the TFR website at fullratchet.net today to sign up for the newsletter and receive all the info on special content, episodes, and the best articles written on startups every week. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you next time.